Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. Hi, I'm Laura Janti, and I'm a graduate student in physics. And today we'll be talking with a graduate student from Harvard's Center for Astrophysics about her work searching for Earth-like planets beyond our solar system. While we have her in the studio, we'll also be asking her about all the asteroids that have been in the news lately, and what roguish characters she'd send to nuke one in case of an Armageddon-type uh, scenario. Ready to begin, Laura? Ready, Nick. Okay, great. So, in March of 2009, NASA launched its Kepler Space Telescope with the aim of identifying so-called Goldilocks planets. Not too hot, not too cold, not too gaseous, but just right for potentially fostering the organic compounds necessary for life as we know it. Our guest today is Courtney Dressing, a PhD candidate in astrophysics who is among the first researchers to comb through Kepler data in the pursuit of such planets. Courtney, welcome to Veritalk. Thank you. So, Courtney, the Kepler mission's tagline is a search for habitable planets, and I wanted to begin by asking you, habitable for whom? Well, the only starting point we have is knowing what the Earth is like for us. And we know that on the Earth, all life as we know it appears to require liquid water. So we've decided to search for planets that could have liquid water on their surfaces. This doesn't mean that, that there might not be life out there that's different, but this is a good starting point. Hmm. How do you identify whether or not there's liquid water on a planet? If we know how long a planet takes to go around its star, and we know how big the star is, we can figure out what the temperature of the planet should be. And if we assume something about the surface pressure of the planet, we can then figure out whether the planet is too cold for liquid water or too hot for liquid water. And so you can estimate the temperature by the distance it is from the star it's orbiting? Exactly. And presumably from the size of the star and the temperature of the star, too? Right. Both of those factors matter. So tell us a bit about the Kepler mission itself. What does the telescope look like? How did we get it there? What, what is it doing up there? Kepler is actually a pretty simple design, and part of the reason why it's been so successful is because it has a simple goal. It's staring at over 100,000 stars for, right now it's done three and a half years, and hopefully we'll do another two years, and it's looking at all of those stars and monitoring exactly how bright they are. In order to do this, Kepler is just one long telescope. It's only about a meter across, so it's actually pretty small, and Kepler is very, very good at measuring the brightness to high precision. So it's measuring variations in the brightnesses of stars at the part per million level. Where are these 100,000 stars where it's looking? It's all along a cone in the direction of Cygnus and Lyra, which is part of the summer triangle that appears almost directly overhead in the summer sky. What is, what is the cone? Oh, just that the stars oh, are at different distances. So it looks like a cone when mm. you project it onto the sky. So what is the, the nearest distance and the, the farthest distance that the telescope can look at? I think it's probably somewhere between maybe 100 light years at the near end to over two or 3,000 light years at the far end for giant-type stars that are much bigger and cooler, actually, than the sun. So all of these stars, then, are inside of our galaxy? Yes, although Kepler does have some cool things in the field that aren't just stars. So we can look at um, active galactic nuclei, for instance, which are interesting types of galaxies. But Kepler's primary mission is the identification of Earth-like planets, right? Are scientists hitchhiking on Kepler data for that sort of stuff? You can call it hitchhiking. That's yeah. a great idea. Um, there's a guest observer program, which allows mm. people to propose to do science with objects that just happen to be in Kepler's field of view. So uh, Kepler is describing this cone of vision uh, into our galaxy, right? And it's, the, it's always the same cone. Kepler is always pointed in the same direction? Right. Kepler is always looking in the same direction. And unlike many satellites, it's not actually orbiting the Earth. It's actually in orbit behind the Earth, traveling around the sun. And the reason for that is 
so it can look continuously at these stars without having to pause for when the sun rises and sets. Mm. So Kepler is following the Earth's orbit directly uh, behind the planet? Right. And over time, Kepler is getting a little bit farther away. So Mm. Kepler's years are getting slowly longer than a year on the Earth. How do you actually use the Kepler data to look for exoplanets? The method Kepler uses is called transit surveys. So what Kepler does is it looks at a star and measures how bright that star is. If there's nothing interesting about that star, if it's just a typical star and there are no spots on the surface, there are no planets orbiting the star, then the brightness should be constant. But if there's a planet orbiting that star, then once per planet year, the planet may appear to cross in front of the star. If the planet does cross in front of the star, then the star will appear to be a little bit dimmer. Based on how much dimmer the star gets, astronomers can figure out how big the planet is. So a Jupiter-sized planet would cause a bigger dip in brightness than an Earth-sized planet. So we're looking for solar eclipses of stars out in the galaxy. Right. And one important thing to keep in mind is that Kepler doesn't actually resolve the disk of the star. You can't see the star with a little black dot for a planet. You just measure the overall brightness of the star. Are you able to account for the possibility of uh, two or more planets transiting the star at the same time? We can, and we've seen a bunch of fascinating systems with multiple planets. So what you would do in that case is you would measure exactly when the star gets fainter and how much fainter it gets. And the planets will always be the same size. So if you find something that's maybe a half a percent change and that happens every year, and then you see something that's a tenth of a percent change that happens every five days, then you know you have two different planets. If it's possible to describe this kind of thing, can you describe the data set that your team received from Kepler? What is the mass of numbers that you are working with now? So the Kepler team has put everything online at the Multimission Archive, which is run by uh, the Space Telescope Institute in Baltimore. And that contains measurements of every single pixel from Kepler that's close to a target star. And it measures the brightness every 30 minutes for most cases, or every five seconds for other cases. And those data are available in raw format. And then they're also available in a nice format where they've actually taken out anything that's due to spacecraft variations. If the spacecraft gets a little hotter, then you might see something that looks like a planet signal when really it's not. And then for our project, we used the light curves, so that's the measurement of how bright the stars are. And then we also used a list of possible planets provided by the Kepler team. So uh, for how long has this data been publicly available? All of the data has been publicly available since October of this year, and much of the data was publicly available before then. The project that you're working on, are you looking at all of the 100,000 stars, or are you focusing on a certain subset? We're focusing on the smallest stars, and that's about 4,000 stars in total. How small are those stars? They're about 30% to 50% of the size of the sun. And why are you looking at those ones in particular? We're looking at those because those actually describe a typical star in the galaxy. Um, Unlike what I learned in school, most stars aren't like the sun. Most stars are actually much smaller and much fainter. So if we want to understand how many planets there are in the galaxy, we need to look to smaller stars. And you could still have habitable planets around these smaller stars? Definitely. They would have to contend with a very different youth. Uh, Young stars are particularly violent when they're young, so planets orbiting these stars might have to deal with ultraviolet flares that planets orbiting stars like the sun wouldn't have to deal with. But once they survive that phase, These stars are so long-lived that civilizations on planets orbiting them could live for longer than the present age of the universe.
As I understand it, you're the first team to be looking for planets orbiting these smaller stars, right? We're the first team to do this using Kepler data to measure the fraction of small stars that host planets. Okay. So why are you the first team? Why hadn't we been looking for these planets around smaller stars before this? There have been some efforts to look for planets around smaller stars from the ground, but for the Kepler data, most of the mission was focused on stars like the Sun, since that was the primary goal of Kepler. Mm. But there just happened to be 4,000 or so cooler stars in the field. And we started off by using models of small stars to figure out exactly how hot and how small those cool stars were. We were then able to figure out the fraction of small stars that host planets by figuring out the smallest planet and the longest period in which we could have seen a planet orbiting any of the small stars. So Courtney, what have your findings been so far? So far, it's been pretty exciting. We've learned that 15% of these small stars host planets that are roughly the same size as Earth that receive about the same amount of light as the Earth. We've also learned that 50% of them have planets that are smaller than Neptune. So that's really exciting for the census of small planets in our galaxy. Hmm. So that means that it's uh, more likely for one of these stars to have a big planet than a small planet? It's more likely for them to have a small planet, actually. Um, Even Neptune is fairly small in the grand scheme of things. And it seems that things like hot Jupiters are rare. Those are oddball planets that are the size of Jupiter or even bigger in periods shorter than Mercury's period. And those were the first things we discovered because they're easiest to find. So how does this change the way that we think about the potential for extrasolar life in the universe? I think it's pretty exciting. Prior to Kepler, we weren't quite sure what the answer would be. We didn't really have a good handle on how many stars in the galaxy might have planets the right temperature to have liquid water on the surface. And now we know that the most common type of star in the galaxy is actually pretty likely to have a planet that could possibly have liquid water on the surface. So once we learn more about whether these potentially habitable worlds actually do have life on them, then we can start to say something about the fraction of life-bearing worlds in the galaxy. Hmm. And to do that, what additional information do you need? We really need a way of figuring out what's in these planets' atmospheres and whether there's anything on the surface, for instance, say, microorganisms that might be producing gases that we could tie back to life. So if we find a planet where we see methane in the atmosphere, that might be due to volcanoes or it could be due to microorganisms. And we really need to find a signature that's less ambiguous. Can you do that with uh, Kepler data? We can't do it with Kepler data because Kepler doesn't measure anything about the wavelengths associated with the dimming. It just measures that the overall light gets fainter. But if we had a follow-up mission where we took a spectrum, so we split the light out into a rainbow, we can then figure out whether there are certain gases in the planet's atmosphere. So one thing that Kepler is doing is sort of staring at this cone and setting bookmarks for future investigation, right? We know there's a planet here. Later on, when we have the technology, we can begin looking into the atmosphere of this planet. That's part of it. Uh, One downside, though, is that the planets studied by Kepler are all pretty far away. They're hundreds of light years away. So another thing that Kepler is doing is figuring out the fractions of certain types of stars that host these planets. So we can go back with different instruments and then look at the brightest, nearest stars all over the sky, not just in that cone, and try to find some planets that are better suited to follow-up analysis. What's the closest Earth-like planet that you found? So right now, our planets are still hundreds of light years away. But if you do the math and you know how many small stars are in our region of the galaxy, and you know the fraction of those small stars that host planets, you can figure out that the nearest Earth-like planet is actually only 10 light years away, 
which is practically a walk across the park in terms of astronomical distances. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. So I wonder if we could broaden out from technical details to sort of the bigger picture behind the Kepler mission. So from your contact with other researchers and with NASA, do you think the enthusiasm behind this project is sort of one of pure scientific uh, curiosity, or is it a search for extraterrestrial life? So Kepler itself can't search for life, but I think we're paving the road to do that in the future. So it's both a mix of figuring out exactly how planets form and how the universe works, and also kindling the hope that maybe there is life out there somewhere. And somewhere in this equation, this equation of enthusiasm, is there a bit of thinking about the possibility of future homes for for mankind? Perhaps, although right now we don't have the technology to get to the world studied by Kepler. Of course. But knowing that that we might have another home only 10 light years away is actually, might be a motivation for for actually working on technology to get there. I hope so. If if we could get personal for a second, what excites you most about uh, about this data? I think the thing that excites me most is how remarkably varied other planets are. From the work we've done, we've found that planets that could be a lot like the Earth are pretty common, which is fantastic. But I'm also really, really excited by worlds that are completely unlike anything we have in our solar system. We've learned that the most common type of planet is actually about twice the size of Earth, and there's nothing in our solar system like that. We don't know now whether those worlds are rocky or whether they're more like Neptune. Mm -hmm. It seems they're more like Neptune. And then there are other worlds out there where you have a solar system And closest in, you have a gas giant, and then you have a rocky planet, and then a gas giant. And that's totally foreign to us. So I really would like to know what goes on in those systems and how did we end up in a solar system that seems so different from everything else we've found. Mm. Do you think that um, part of the motivation, this is going back to what I was was asking earlier, um, is to to actually search for extraterrestrial life now that we've identified these planets that that may have it? I think part of it is to look for biosignatures, any evidence that other worlds have life on them. And it would be great to receive a message from one of these worlds that would definitely be much clearer than looking at the atmospheric composition. But even if we look at the atmosphere and we don't find signs of life, we're still learning a lot about how planets form. What is the current state of the art in terms of looking for messages from other planets? Right now, most of the state of the art is from the SETI Institute, so the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence and the Allen Telescope Array in California. And how do those look for signs? Mostly they're, I don't know too much about them since this isn't my area of expertise, Um, but they're looking at particular wavelengths to see if there's anything that looks unpredictable, whether there's a signal that doesn't seem to have any astrophysical source. Laura, do you know uh, about the SETI at Home project? I've heard about that, where you can look for extraterrestrial life by running an algorithm on your computer. Yeah, from your home computer. So, they, so this, these telescopes uh, generate so much data that they need to basically crowdsource the analysis of that data. So you can download a little screensaver, which runs in the background as you're doing other tasks on your computer, and participate in some small way in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, right? I've been doing that since I was, I think, 10 or something. It's, it's a lot of fun. I have too. Yeah. Oh, do you have it now? I don't have it now. Um, but I used to have it. So I wonder um, if we could speak about your own background for just a, just a bit. What brought you to astrophysics in, in the first place? How did you get your start in the field? I've always been interested in stargazing. And I read a couple of science fiction novels when I was little. And I enjoyed sitting outside in the evening and looking up at the stars and wondering if maybe any of those stars had planets orbiting them that had other people on them. So you've been thinking about exoplanets since you were a child. For a long time. Wow. Um, And then in elementary school and middle school, I went to space camp and learned more about what you actually need to do to have a career in astronomy or aerospace engineering. 
And as time passed, I realized that I was more interested in trying to find planets in our galaxy and see what we could say about the possibility of them hosting life. Hmm. Can we go back to that? Um, is, I mean, I know there's this famous Drake equation. I don't know if you want to talk about it, which quantifies the probability of finding life out there. Um, could you describe what, how it works? Sure. So the Drake equation starts off astronomical and then ends up pretty biological. And it takes a combination of terms, starting off with the number of stars in the galaxy, the fraction of those stars that have planets, the fraction of those planets that are habitable, the fraction of those planets that have intelligent life, the lifetime of an intelligent civilization. And then I think there are a couple other terms as well, depending on who you ask. There are a couple of different variations. And this work we're doing here at Harvard addresses the first term, the number of stars that have planets. And I think we really need to figure out more about what factors are required for life in order to address the rest of the Drake equation. Are there estimates for, for the rest of those factors, even though we don't, we may not know exactly what the, the value is? Do we have reasonable guesses at what the values are? I think we have fairly reasonable guesses for some of them, but we're also very limited by our sample size, which is one. So depending on whether Earth life is usual or unusual, we might be really biasing ourselves based on what we assume. Um, given what you know the fact that we only have one sample size uh, what's the current uh, estimate of the probability that there is life well there's there. definitely life somewhere. sorry <laughs> additional life uh, life on another planet <laughs> i think it really varies from there are no other worlds out there to there's got to be one to hundreds but i think we need more research Hmm. Well, from the attempt to get closer to distant stellar bodies, we move now to the disturbing possibility of stellar bodies trying to get way too close to us. Uh, a few short weeks ago, the asteroid uh, 2012 DA14 passed nearby enough to Earth to threaten orbiting satellites. And the day before that, a spectacular explosion over Russia was apparently caused by the largest meteorite to enter the Earth's atmosphere in over a century. So while you're here, Courtney, I wanted to take this opportunity to ask you, as a professional astrophysicist, how worried are you about a catastrophe? catastrophic collision with an asteroid? I think it's something we need to be aware of. And it's the reason why we have centers like the Center for Minor Planets that track objects in our solar system that could be on Earth-crossing orbits. So how comprehensive are surveys like that? Um, in other words, how many potential asteroids are, are they missing? So one of the tricky things is that these objects are small and they're dark, so it's hard to find them. And in the case of the meteorite that hit Russia, it actually came from the sunward direction. So it was incredibly hard to find. And if we want to be able to know about all these objects, then we really need to double our efforts to try to classify and just count the number of objects that could potentially hit the Earth. Hmm. Of course, knowing about them is one thing. The other, the other side of the coin is what happens if we find out that one is coming. What sort of technology is available to, to deal with an asteroid that might be coming towards us? So the classic answer is always to blow it up. But there are disadvantages there because then instead of having one big impactor with a known trajectory, you then have a bunch of little things that might not actually be so little. So you might end up doing yourself more damage because then you create multiple impactors that could all still hit the Earth. So a better solution might be to fly a satellite next to it and try to change its trajectory a little bit through the gravitational influence of the satellite. Oh, but that's so much less dramatic than nuking the thing. It's a lot less dramatic. Do you think this is uh, actually feasible if we discovered that there, you know, we had two years until impact with the satellite? Do you think that there would be a, an effort by, by whom? By the, the United States government, by the UN, by governments coming together to try to actually do this? It's an interesting question. I hope there would be an effort, and I wouldn't be surprised if the effort came from a private company. 
Um, but I think that NASA and other space agencies probably do have the technology to do this as well. How much lead time do you think we would need to have a reasonable chance at uh, saving ourselves in such a scenario? It really depends on the trajectory. Um, if you find something out early, that's much better because this is a much, it's a slow process. Mm. So depending on where the object is in its orbit, you might know about it, but you still wouldn't be able to do anything effective. Yeah. If this planet gets destroyed, apparently there are many more we can move to later on. Uh, so, <laughs> Courtney Dressing, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you as always, Laura. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks also to our producer, James Brandt, and our guardian protectors in the GSAS Office of Communications. Veritalk is made possible with help from the Harvard Media Production Center, and our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening. <laughs>